great. You can be seated. Happy Mother's Day. <laughs> I am um, super nervous, y'all. Super nervous. Um, but I am so glad that we took some time this morning to honor the mothers of this house. Now that I have the microphone, I want to honor single dads, right? Congratulations. You're doing an incredible job. I also, I, I, I want us to understand that there's some mothers here that, that, or some ladies here that you've lost your mother. Or maybe when you think about your mother, you don't have fond memories, but maybe rather points of trauma. And I want you to know today I see you and I love you and you have a house full of people that are ready to help however they can. Amen. I honor my mother today. She has been the most perfect mother. She is actually speaking at her church in Austin, or I know that her and my dad would be on the front row cheering me on, and so I need y'all to cheer me on this morning, please. <laughs> so growing up, I didn't know if I was going to tell the story, but I'm going to go ahead. Uh, so growing up, I, um, I was given a, a real a gift and a natural ability of being able to smart mouth my mother. Anybody else have that ability or have a kid with that ability? Well, my mother, okay, there had been, there were so many times that we would be across the room from each other and my mother would somehow become an, an American ninja warrior and she would leap over the beds and climb mountains of laundry to swiftly administer, administer some discipline to my smart mouth. And she is the one that delivered me from that gift, and honestly, I hope that I grow up to be just like her. It's an honor to speak to you today. Thank you, Bishop. Thank you, Pastor, for, for trusting me. Um, it's, a true, it's a true honor. Listen, if you don't hear anything else that I say today, I want you to hear this. This is not just a message for mothers. And just because I'm a woman speaking to you today, this is not a message just for women. I truly believe that God has given me something to say for everybody in this room. And so I want you to repeat after me. Lord, in your name, give me ears to hear what you're saying to me. Let your words remain in my mind and take root in my heart. In Jesus' name. Last week, Pastor launched our sermon series, Courageous, and he spoke to us about Queen Esther, the once orphan girl that saved the Jews by her courageous plea to the king. And he gave us our definition for courage, and that is when conviction and compassion meet. You see, to have courage beyond our ability, we must be moved by deep conviction and compassion. And when I think of the word courage, I also think of the word tenacity. And that's the word that I want to focus on today. And the definition for tenacity is persistent determined, the ability to grip firmly onto something and never let go. And today I want to bring to you three women 
and each were given an opportunity midway through their lives. And because of their courage and tenacity, they allowed God to rewrite the end of their stories. And these women directly impact our lives today. I enjoyed studying so much this week, kind of taking a break from four-year-old playland and diving into the stories of these women. They were so fascinating. The details were just captivating, and the words just kept popping off the page. And I kept saying, Jeremy, can I talk about this part of the story? Can I bring out these, these details? And he kept saying, no, you only have 20 minutes. And so I am going to only hit the very important parts. The first woman I want to bring to you today, her name is Rahab, and her story is found in Joshua 2. You know, Rahab is referred all throughout the Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament, and she's always referred to the same way. Does anybody know Rahab the harlot, the prostitute, right? But what we need to understand is that Rahab had no choice in her occupation, okay? Women in that day, they had zero value. If they had value, it was because they were married and they had children. And at this point in Rahab's story, she had neither. I love Rahab, and I love everything that I've learned from her, and so I'm going to go ahead and give her some points of honor and let you know that the end of her story is she is the great-grandmother of our Savior, Jesus Christ. But we're going to pick up right in the middle of Rahab's story. Rahab lived in Jericho, and her house was built into the walls of Jericho, the same Jericho that we probably all learned about in Sunday school. And Joshua, he was looking to scope out Jericho, and so he sends out his two CIA special ops spies, and they scale the wall of Jericho and slip into the window of Rahab's house. And Rahab knows exactly who they are because everybody in the city of Jericho, they're talking about Joshua. They're talking about the children of Israel. They're talking about the God of Israel and all that he did, how he delivered them from Egypt and how he parted the Red Sea. And it was when the king's guards came and knocked on Rahab's door that she realized, hey, this could be the opportunity of my lifetime. This could be the opportunity for the rest of my life to be rewritten. You see, at that moment, with the king's guards on this side and the spies on this side, she could have opened the door and given the spies to the guards, and the history of Jericho would have been completely different. But that's not what she did. She hid the spies. And she opened the door and told the king's guards, yeah, they were here. Uh, I went and I sent them that way. And so they headed off and Rahab went and had a conversation with the spies. So in Joshua 2 and verse 11, she says, when we heard of it, when we had heard all about your God, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. In verse 12, this sounds just like my mom at the beginning of every good talking to. She said, now then, 
That's what Rahab says. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them that you will save us from death. And in verse 14, the spies answer, our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us this land. Our first point of how we can have tenacious courage beyond our ability is that courage displays a true confession of who God is and trusts what he can do. Rahab confessed and knew the God of Israel was the true God. Rahab had no idea if she could trust this God. She had no idea if these men of God were trustworthy. Up to this point in Rahab's life, I doubt she had any trust in people, especially men. But it didn't matter if anyone else was going to keep their side of the promise. She had nothing to lose, and so she was going to keep her side of the deal. And she saw the opportunity that God gave her, and with great courage and tenacity, she gathered her family. She placed a scarlet cord in her window like the spies had said, and finally the day came. The circling stopped. The praises were shouted. The trumpets were blown. The walls started shaking and falling. And then all of a sudden, silence. And Rahab realized that that huge fortress had fallen except for the small portion of her house. And even though Rahab and her family were Canaanites, which historically are the arch enemies of Israel, even though Rahab is a Gentile, Joshua called for her and her family, and they lived the rest of their lives with Israel. And that is how Rahab became the great-great-grandmother of Jesus Christ. Rahab is the woman that fought for her future. The second woman, she's also a Canaanite. She's also a Gentile. And we read about her story in both Matthew and Mark. But I want to talk to you and tell you what Matthew has to say about this woman. In Matthew 15 and 21, verse 21, it says, Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Leaving that place, what we need to realize at this point in Scripture, Jesus had fed the 5,000. He had preached a sermon in the synagogue of Nazareth, his hometown, and he was ran out. And at this point, he had been completely rejected by the Jews. And what Matthew could have said is he left there and he went on and found himself right in the middle of Sin City. And in verse 22, it says, A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. And we see, just like Rahab, the woman makes a true confession and completely trusts who Jesus is. Actually, this woman has a better understanding that Jesus is the Messiah than anybody else at this point in his ministry. You see, being a Canaanite and from the land of Cana, they knew that their true king was King David and that the Messiah would be a son of David. Verse 23, Jesus didn't answer a word. <laughs> totally just straight up ignored the woman. And so his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away. She continually, she just keeps on and keeps on crying out of a, out 
for us. So clearly she cried out more than just the one time. She was on their heels. She was in their ear. And the disciples at this point had gotten super annoyed. In verse 24, he answered, Jesus answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Who were the lost sheep of Israel? It was the Jews. So what was Jesus saying? He was saying, I have first come so that the Jews would be brought into salvation. This woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. And he replied, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. But this woman cries out. She gets ignored. She cries out. She's told by Jesus that he isn't there to help her. She keeps begging, begging and Jesus, he says he's not going to give what's meant for somebody else to somebody of the likes of her. Because even though Jesus at this point had been rejected by the Jews, he was not yet ready to turn his ministry to the Gentiles. Verse 27 says, Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. This woman was persistent. She was determined. She was tenacious. She did not care about who she was bothering. She was not going to stop. She was moved by the deep conviction that Jesus was the Messiah. She trusted that he was her answer and her compassion for her daughter would not let her go home without healing Watching her daughter being tormented, it just wasn't going to happen again. She did not leave. She found her grip, and she wasn't letting go. And she didn't care if she was bothering the disciples. She didn't care if she was bothering Jesus himself. Verse 28, And then Jesus said to her, Woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. You see, what we have to understand about the significance of this moment is that not only was the daughter healed, but after this, Jesus turned his ministry towards the disciples. This woman's courage blew the doors of salvation open for you and for me. Amen? Our second point today of how we can have this tenacious courage is that courage recognizes a God-given opportunity and pursues it. This Canaanite woman saw the opportunity coming to her region. She ran after it, she stood in the gap, and she fought for her family. But God has not stopped presenting us with the opportunity to stand in the gap for our families and for others. More times than not, I'll tell you, opportunities from God, it looks like maybe we're seeing some voids maybe some gaps in our church or in our community. Looks like maybe there's some programs that we think could get started or some groups that could get started. Maybe we're noticing that some people are falling through the cracks, but you can count on it. When God sends an opportunity specifically for you, the enemy will come and start to muddy those waters, right? And all of a sudden, the God-given opportunity starts to become our biggest complaint. Why isn't anybody doing this? Or it becomes our point of gossip. Don't they see that there's some people slipping through the cracks? But what we must recognize is that God is giving that opportunity and he's showing you 
And when conviction and compassion meet, you got to start running after it with everything you've got before the enemies can start muddying the waters. Our last woman today, she's not as well known as Rahab or the Canaanite woman. She's found in 2 Samuel. She wasn't a wife, but she was a concubine or a, a girlfriend of King Saul. We don't really know much about her except that her name is Rizpah and she has two sons. So I want to set up this scene and I'm going to tell you the majority of this story because even in the most modern versions of the Bible, y'all, this story is PG-13 at, at best, all right? So at some point in history, there was a promise made between Israel and the Gibeonites. And when Saul was king, he broke that promise and Israel attacked the Gibeonites. Saul dies David becomes king, and David finds himself, and he finds his kingdom in the middle of a famine. And in the third year of that fam famine, David cries out, God help us. God heal our land. And God says, you know, David, you might need to go talk to the Gibeonites. So David did. And the Gibeonites said, yeah, oh yeah, we want seven of Saul's sons. And so David ordered the seven sons to be taken to the Gibeonites, and the Gibeonites hung the seven sons and left them on the wall. And we know that the mother of two of those sons is Rizpah. At this point, Rizpah had nothing left. She had no husband, no king, no way to protect herself, no way of protecting the lives of her sons. But Rizpah still had one thing to fight for. Rizpah is the woman that fought for what was left. In 2 Samuel 21.10, it says, Rizbah, daughter of Ai, took sackcloth and spread it out for herself on a rock. And from the beginning of the harvest till the rain poured down from the heavens on the bodies, she did not let the birds touch them by day or wild animals by night. I can't imagine what it would be like for my son to be executed can't imagine what it would be like to fight birds and wild animals from feasting on my son's bloated, decaying body. I can't imagine watching his face become disfigured as I sit and breathe in the smell of death. But Rizba knew she could not leave these seven bodies to be eaten by birds or wild animals. It wasn't just a once-a-day swat or a a once a evening shooing because birds and wild animals, they can smell rotting bodies for miles. With seven bodies to, fend, to defend, we know that Rizba was faced with the fight of her life. Rizba fought day and night, and she stayed from April until the beginning of October. She didn't leave, she stayed, she fought. You see, Rizba, she was Jewish, and the Jewish custom was that. When somebody dies, you bury the body because at that point, the soul can find peace. And so Rizba, she wasn't just fighting for these physical bodies. Rizba believed that she was fighting for their eternity. Rizba was moved by the conviction of her, her faith and moved by the compassion of fighting for what was left of her sons. And in 2 Samuel 21, 11, when David was told... What Ai's daughter Rispa, Saul's concubine, had done, he went 
and took the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan from the citizens of Jabesh-Gilead. Verse 13, David brought the bones of Saul and of his son Jonathan from there, and the bones of those who had been killed and exposed were gathered. When King David heard about this mother that never left, he gathered the bones of Saul and of Jonathan and of the seven sons that were hanging and gave them a proper burial. In verse 14, they buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the, in the tomb of Saul's father Kish at Zelah and Benjamin and did everything the king commanded. And after that, God answered prayers on behalf of the land. It wasn't after the execution of these sons that the famine ended. It was the tenacious love of a mother that got the attention of the king. And King David knew exactly how to get the attention of heaven. And after David's action, that is when God healed the land. Our third point today of how to have tenacious courage is that courage is finding your grip and not letting go until you have the attention of heaven. You see, there's still birds and wild animals that are looking to feast on our souls, on our marriages, on our family. They just look a little different today. But don't be mistaken. The enemies are coming from miles away. And like Rizpah, we must fight for whatever is left. Whether it's your personal relationship with God that has been drifting for years, it's worth the fight. Maybe it's what's left of your marriage after years of broken trust and disappointments. It's worth the fight. Even if it seems as though your child is an unreachable prodigal, it's worth the fight. In all three of these stories, these women were moved by deep conviction of God, but it was the compassion they had for others that moved each one of them to do the courageous. You know, I could throw up so many pictures on the screen of well-known people throughout history that, I mean, they just nailed all three of these points and they rewrote their stories and they rewrote history, but what I would prefer to do I would prefer to highlight some people in this house. It looks a lot like Stanley and Tammy Bennett who get a call in the middle of the night that there's a child that needs a safe place to stay and they say, well, we've got room in our hearts and so we will make room in our house. Amen. It looks a lot like Deanie Fry, who would be very quick to remind you that she hasn't had the perfect life, and she would be quick to probably tell you that she's not a perfect mother, but at some point she saw an opportunity for some stories to be rewritten. And Deanie's children, Tori and Tanner, they serve faithfully almost every Sunday, and they've done so since they were 12 years old. Amen. a lot like Rex Chapman, who is a safe man in a world of unsafety. He is a safe dad. He's a good grandfather to all of our children. He has taught our children the 
Word of God for over 40 years. He's teaching in kids' class today, and on Wednesday, he will teach our 10 and 11-year-olds. Amen. It looks like Brent Wallace, who year after year, Sunday after Sunday, who has served on our security team, who is ready to fiercely protect any one of us. It looks a lot like, it looks a lot like Kent Sims, who one day he saw some voids that needed to be filled and at the drop of the hat, he'll rush into a disaster zone to take supplies. It looks, it looks a lot like Mitzi Holland who drives van loads of people multiple times a week to church and to CR. It looks a lot like Eva Hunt who will walk into a bar and button up the shirt of a drunk man and drag him to church. It, it looks a lot like Brent and Rachel Short who, who one day, one day they were sitting in a, in a courtroom and God showed them that they had the opportunity to grab people straight out of the pit of hell. They had uncertainties and they faced criticism, but with the help of the Holy Spirit, they gripped on and they're leading the nation's best Celebrate Recovery program. And Pastor, can you come back up? I have found something that moves me to conviction and compassion. I have found something that I can grip on onto with a tenacity that's far beyond my ability. And it's you. I saw a picture a couple of years ago and I've never been able to get it out of my mind. Can we show that picture? This is a man in England who is ready to jump off a bridge and seven strangers that were passing by, they gripped onto him and they held on for hours until he was safe. I've never forgotten this picture because this is what I want our church to look like. If you ask me, what is, what is your vision for Christ's tabernacle? This, this is my vision for Christ's tabernacle. I want us to grip onto each other and refuse to let go until we are all walking together on the streets of gold.